Hi, everybody, and welcome to Plurilingually Speaking, a podcast series from Searle, the Center for Educational Research in Language and Literacies at the University of Toronto, Canada, at OISE, the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. Plurilingually Speaking is a podcast conceived by Searle as a medium to engage in meaningful conversation with the leading academics in the field of languages and literacies. This podcast will inform and educate our listeners about the newest developments, trends, and research in the fields of languages and literacies, and it will also be an opportunity to learn about the various members of our rich community and give our listeners a chance to connect with our guests in a meaningful way. Plurilingually speaking will reflect the diverse population in this field, and as such, episodes may be conducted in more than one language. All of our podcast guests hail from different parts of the world, and speaking plurilingually, we want the conversation to truly reflect the increasingly plurilingual nature of the world. My name is Myron Manogarin, and I will be your host for today's episode of Plurilingually Speaking. It is an honor and a privilege to welcome Dr. Matteo Santipolo to today's episode of... Dr. Matteo Santipolo hails from Rovigo, Italy, and currently resides in Padova, where he is a full professor of educational linguistics at the University of Padova. His main research interests revolve around foreign language education, in particular, Italian, English, and Spanish as second and foreign languages, the teaching of the sociolinguistic aspects of foreign languages, and sociolinguistics in relation to language policies. He was a visiting student at the University of Warwick and an Erasmus student at the University of Reading in Great Britain, and eventually obtained a degree in foreign languages and literatures at the South Foscati University in Venice, where he graduated with high distinction. He also obtained the ITEL's master's degree in education and promotion of the Italian language and culture to foreigners at Safascari University. He attended a PhD course in linguistics at the University of Pisa and spent long periods of time studying in South Africa. He also served as a researcher in modern language education at the University of Bari from 2002 to 2005 He also became an associate professor in educational linguistics in the Department of Literary and Linguistic Studies at the University of Padua, where he served from 2008 to 2017, after which he became a full professor. His academic pursuits have taken him all around the world as he has held seminars, taught courses, and spoke at conferences in over 40 countries spanning five continents. He has also taught as a visiting professor at various universities around the world, such as the University of Melbourne in Australia, the University of KwaZulu-Natal Durban in South Africa, the University of Malta, Tribhuvan University in Nepal, the Nasmial University of Tucumán in Argentina, the University of Hamburg in Germany, and the University of Santiago de Compostela. He is also a well-established author, having completed more than 140 publications, which span volumes, essays, articles, reviews, and books. He is currently the Vice President of DEAL, the Italian Association of Educational Linguistics and Language Teaching Education. He has served as a member on the Board of Directors of DEAL since 2015. He has also acted as a Secretary General of the Fédération Internationale des Professeurs de Langue Vivante, or the International Federation of Language Teacher Associations since 2019. Since 2017, he has been the director of RILA, Rassegna Italiana di Linguistica Applicata, 
which is one of Italy's most prestigious journals on applied linguistics, founded in 1969. He was also the co-editor of the journal ISA, the Italian Studies in Southern Africa, since 2019. With that being said, I would like to once again welcome Dr. Santipolo for spending some time with us today on this podcast episode. Dr. Santipolo, you have accomplished so much in your academic career. How do you have the time to do all of this? Well, it was fun, basically. That was easy. And when you have fun, it's always easy to find time. So that's mm -hmm. well, it's not really a secret, but that's the, uh, the answer to your question, basically. When you have fun, you've got time to do whatever you like. Uh, it's, it's like a, you know, a circle. Uh, and mm -hmm. The more you have fun, the more you find time to have fun. So that's the secret, basically. <laughs> Amazing. And I think that's, that's wonderful that you said that, because I find the people do the best at their jobs when they have fun. And you're, that's what you're telling me. And it kind of leads me to think, and I know this is something that you've thought about as well, um, having seen some of your previous work, but how did you get into this field? How did you become interested in linguistics and eventually educational sociolinguistics? Because that seems to dominate most of your research and thinking. Okay, I'll try to cut the long story short. Um, <laughs> I first became aware of the, let's say, the existence of different languages when I was about six years mm -hmm. old, um, and I was attending my first year of primary school. Uh, one day, uh, this is very funny, I think, I received a present, uh, as a present, a collection of notebooks, which all had a different flag and the related currency as their cover. I distinctly remember uh, the flags of Great Britain, Spain, France, uh, and Germany, but I'm mm -hmm. sure there must have been others uh, in the series. And they immediately, for some reason, caught my curiosity. And out of the blue, I asked my daddy what language was spoken in those countries. And by answering my question, I think uh, my daddy sowed the seeds of a passion which has accompanied me, has accompanied me ever since. And has literally and very positively, I would say, marked my life ever mm -hmm. since. So that's basically how it all started. Um, quite uh, unusual, I would say, because as you can see, there's no direct relation between <laughs> language and those notebooks. But right. that triggered off my imagination, I would say. So that's the way it all started. Interesting. That's that's such a that's such an interesting start because I feel like, you know, ch as children or you know even as adults. We're inspired by different things, random things even, right? Like for, for in your case, the flags really kind of spurred something within you. Yeah. So, I, you know, that leads me to think um, because, you know, you saw the different flags and, you know, as you said, you didn't quite make the connection between the languages then. But how did you find your way towards that field? Like, how did you get to the study of languages and your interest and passion in all of these languages? Yeah, um, I, I must confess I was very lucky because in those days it wasn't common to teach foreign languages at primary schools in, in, Italia, in, in Italy. And mm -hmm. my teacher was very, she was a, a real interpreter. She, she, you know, she tried to uh, invent new methods to involve mm -hmm. us in new ways to teach. And, um, and there was, um, a girl, I think she was about, she, she looked much older to me those days. I think she was about 20, 21, but I was just a child, of course. She came from Canada and she was bilingual uh, and she was there to, to spend a period of time a year, I think, in my hometown mm -hmm. uh, as, as a visiting student or something like that. And so my right. teacher 
uh, used to, uh, to take her to our school. And she, uh, one week she spoke French to us and the following week she spoke English to us. So that wow. was my first exposition to uh, foreign languages. So Amazing. that was my first approach to both English and French. Then French didn't grow very much from, <laughs> from that point, but English sure. definitely became my, my, I would say my heart language, mm -hmm. today, so language I love the most. So that's where we all started. Amazing, amazing. So that that leads me to, I know something that I believe you said as well, and the concept of curiosity, right? So as a linguist, one of the things that you have said is you need to be curious yeah. as a linguist. And this curiosity is something that you displayed at such a young age, um, you know, with this experience with the exchange student. So could you talk a little bit about curiosity in the role of not just learning the language, but how it might shape somebody who wants to be a linguist or who is a linguist? All right. Okay, it's not easy to answer this question, as you can imagine, because a oh, linguist yeah. is, is actually many things. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think linguists are just people endowed with uh, a huge hunger for understanding languages. Um, and by this, I don't mean that um, learning uh, languages to speak them uh, is, is, is just part of that, it's the only part of that. I mean, you need to be curious for languages, not to speak them, but to understand how they work, what's behind them. Mm -hmm. You need to, um, you know, to be attracted by uh, the history of the language, how they've changed, their, their structure, um, not just in relation to morphology or syntax, but yep. pronunciation, the way That's they're used uh, in, as real things, not just as uh, objects that you describe in a grammar book and things like that. Um, and what fascinated me the most was the relation uh, that may derive from the use of language, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and the relations between, you know, or among different languages. So all of these things put together um, lie, I think, at the foundation of what a linguist really is. As you said, the key word here is curiosity uh, for mm -hmm. languages, a kind of, I would even call it a kind of longing to, to dig into the nooks and crannies of human communications in all possible respects. Um, the main feature a linguist needs uh, to possess is, is, I think, a kind of curiosity for anything that has to do with language or languages, mm. um, and always needs to be willing and open to accept that not everything that regards language can be rationally explained. This is another point that people mm -hmm. who deal with linguistics sometimes find hard to understand. It's not always possible to, to give a rational uh, yes. explanation, a clear-cut explanation of a certain phenomenon. There are questions about languages that will never have an answer uh, and, and answers that will never have a question for yep. <laughs> some reason, <laughs> you know what I mean. So that's, that's the point. Um, and that's what I think makes um, a good linguist, you know, always to, to be always curious about language, language matters, uh, not one language in specific, of course, we all have, you know, uh, a special interest in, in, in a specific right. language, but it's language as a, as, as a human phenomenon that I think attracts people and, and, and pushes them to become linguists. Um, wow, that's such, a, such an interesting answer. And it sparked my curiosity now to kind of ask you about something you mentioned. And 
I think it's something like you said, many people don't either think about it or don't recognize, but the, that there may not be a rationality behind some of these things that you might see or hear or learn. Could you give us maybe an example of one of these, you know, points that where rationality might just be thrown out the window? Ah, okay. Um, well, you understand this when you compare, for example, mm -hmm. uh, different languages. They may have sure. completely different answers to the very same problem. Mm -hmm. um, let us compare, you know, something that I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, um, tenses in English sure. and tenses in, in Italian, of course. Uh, there are certain things in English that you can't say in Italia and vice versa. I mean, you can say them, of course. You can, uh, um, um, there's a beautiful book by a very famous Italian novelist and, 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 and scientist, uh, Umberto Eco, that I'm sure you've all heard mm -hmm, about. Of course. Uh, and it's called uh, uh, Saying Almost the Same Thing. And he talks about translation. Uh, and when you translate from one text to another, there are certain things that simply uh, don't, don't, uh, don't work. Uh, yep. because they, they don't fit. So something yeah. may be correct in one language, but may be wrong in another language. Right. And they're both right. Uh, mm -hmm. and that, that, that's the point. Going back to tenses, uh, uh, you know, the idea that an action started in the past and still goes on in the present uh, mm -hmm. absolutely doesn't absolutely make any sense in Italian because it's either in the past or in the present. Right. So it's completely impossible for an, uh, for an Italian speaker to understand this idea that there's this kind of continuity between the past and the present. It's either the past or the present. Or the present. Of course, we have strategies to, to say the same thing, but not just by using a certain tense. There's nothing mm -hmm. like that in Italian. So this is something that goes beyond rationality. Uh, and Wow. Yeah. That's, that's, it's so interesting. And I feel like that could be a, an episode on its own just discussing that topic so oh, yeah. i'll leave our audience with the taste of this question so they can uh, think about it on their own further and maybe even reach out to you and uh, discuss this further but this makes me wonder now so having you know knowing one two three languages and trying to make sense of those languages it might lead to possible clashes or mistranslations or misuse of, you know, not misuse, but not using it in the correct context in certain languages. And it makes me wonder about the role of being a, you know, a multilingual or a plurilingual in today's world and how that affects our language identity. Um, what do you think about that? How do you think this impacts our language identity? I know it's a loaded question, but do you think it, gives way to more uh you know plurilingual in interactions or do you think that it might lead to more as you said some of these rationality problems wow this is a question that would need hours to be answered <laughs> but um, uh, um let's let me make a, um, a, a point first of all sure um, um Contrary to what many uh, uninformed people think, um, especially in the Western world, bilingualism, multilingualism, plurilingualism is the norm, not the exception. Mm -hmm. so the majority of the world population is actually multilingual. They may speak two, three, even four languages. Mm -hmm. Africa, 
for example, is basically a multilingual uh, continent. Everyone in Africa speaks at least two or three languages, sometimes languages that are not even mutually intelligible, that do mm -hmm. not belong to the same language family. So right. this is the starting point. Multilingualism is not the exception. Individual and social multilingualism uh, is not the exception. It's the norm. So this mm -hmm. is the starting point. That means yeah. that uh, as human beings, uh, we are, um, so to speak, uh, uh, planned to be multilingual. Uh, we are, uh, um, in a way, endowed with the faculty of being multilingual. Mm -hmm. So it's the it's monolingualism. There's a colleague of mine, a Canadian uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Anthony Malika, who says that monolingualism is curable. And I agree with that. It's considering monolingualism a kind of disease that needs some treatment. Okay, this is my perspective on, sure. on, on being multilingual and being bilingual. And, and since I think it is very important to, to practice what you preach, uh, mm -hmm. um, I'll tell you something about my, my own family. Uh, my wife is from Argentina, so her native language is Argentinian Spanish, which is quite different from uh, the Spanish that is spoken in other countries, sure. speaking countries, Mexico uh, or Spain itself, completely mm -hmm. in some respects. Um, sometimes I, I notice that there are even problems of uh, uh, mutual intelligibility when she interacts mm -hmm. with speakers of other varieties of Spanish, right. uh, especially when it relates to, for example, vocabulary, because there are big mm -hmm. differences. I think there are, just to give you an example, more differences between Spanish and uh, um, Spanish variety, between among Spanish varieties than, than there are between or among um, English varieties. Um, wow. You know, not in terms of pronunciation, which is also relevant, but in terms of vocabulary, there are vocabulary. Uh, more differences in Spanish than than in English, um, but to go back to my to my <laughs> private life, so to speak, Correct. which is also part of my job in a way. Mm -hmm. um, um, we had two daughters; one is three and one is seven years old, and we've been uh, uh, speaking to them in using three languages simultaneously. Right. I try to speak English all the time when I talk to them. My wife speaks Spanish to them. And when we um, speak between the two of us, we use Italian because when I first met her, I didn't understand. Well, I didn't speak Spanish. I could understand it relatively right. well because Italian and Spanish are not that far that mutual intelligibility mm -hmm. is possible even if you've never studied the other language. Sure. Still, I couldn't speak Spanish. Uh, now I speak it with a, a porteño accent that is the accent of Buenos Aires. That's where right. my wife comes yeah. from so you can understand <laughs> how strong the impact <laughs> right. was and for obvious reasons. But my daughters um, um, are growing up trilingual they can understand English, they can understand Spanish, they can, of course, understand Italian. Um, there are a lot of studies about uh, bilingualism, but fewer mm -hmm. studies about trilingualism, multilingualism. And what I'm trying to do is uh, study, investigate uh, what my daughters do with the three languages they are familiar with. Right. And what I've, 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 I can't say I've found out so far, but what I've understood so far is that there is a kind of hierarchy between the three languages that they know. Interesting. Uh, the first one is, of course, the language of the context, that is Italian. When they go to school, they speak Italian. 
not just Italian, but in the area where we live, there is also a local dialect, which is uh, historically speaking an independent language. I mean, it's related right. to Italian because it derives from Latin, but it sure. is not a variety of Italian. It's a different mm. language. I, I would say that there's between this dialect, which is the Venetian dialect and Italian, the same distance that there is between Spanish and say French or Italian. So it's, it's a Romance language, not independent politically, but definitely independent historically. Sure. Okay, so they can also understand this. Um, but I would leave that out for the moment because that's not the language they normally hear at home. Right. So uh, in this hierarchy, there's Italian as the first most relevant language for obvious reasons, socialization mm -hmm. passes through the use of Italian. And then there's uh, Spanish, which is, of course, uh, their mother's uh, language, not, not mother, right. but mother's language, right. if you know what I mean. Yep. Uh, and then there's English, which is in some way my second native language. It's not native, of course, but it's something that I feel as something uh, that I, I really own, at least in terms of uh, affection of, of what I feel yeah. when, I, when I use it, when I speak it, when I study it. It's definitely mm -hmm. the language I know the best uh, uh, from, 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 um, from a scientific point of view, it's the right. language I've devoted most of my studies uh, to. So uh, there, there's this hierarchy, but the hierarchy um, also um, uh, leads to, you know, a different amount of use of each of the three languages, which sure. changes according to the context in mm. which they happen to find themselves. So when, when my elder daughter was uh, three years, we spent some time in, in Malta. I was visiting professor there. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and little by little, but right after a couple of weeks, uh, um, her English started, I wouldn't say to prevail, but to, I would say, re-emerge. And it became more important than her Spanish in a way. So she came back from school and from, 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 uh, from nursery because she didn't go to school. Um, and, and she sometimes uh, switched to, 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 to English, uh, mixing the, the three languages as she had never done before with that frequency. Uh, then we spent uh, um, some time uh, a month in Argentina where I was a uh, uh, visiting professor at the University of Tucumán in the northwest um, of the country. Right. And then uh, Spanish emerged and the other two languages uh, went down mm. in this kind of hierarchy. So there's this continuous movement. So bi yeah. bilingualism, multilingualism, trilingualism are never stable. They change a lot. They, according to the context in which the right. speakers happen to find uh, to find themselves, and there's an episode that I would like to to tell you about. Of course, uh, it, it dates back to I think she was about four years old, um, and and uh, um, she was uh, yes, she, it was nice, but not late night, but it was like evening, and 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 she wanted to go. She told me. A la cama, which in Spanish means uh, to go to bed, literally. Sure. But there's a confusion that Italian speakers uh, and Spanish speakers always make when they when they speak each other's language between cama and camera. Camera in Italian means bedroom. Okay, oh, so okay. but the two words sound basically the same. So sure. cama yeah. means bed, uh, camera means bedroom, and what what makes it even worse is that you know. Uh, the bed is in the bedroom, <laughs> so it, <laughs> right. it's even more confusing for for uh, for for somebody who is learning the language. And this is right. a mistake that all Spanish speakers make when they learn Italian, and all Italian speakers make when they learn Spanish. 
So she wow. was, a bit, I was a bit perplexed when I heard this because it wasn't the time that she normally would go to bed. And right. I didn't understand whether she wanted to go to her bedroom or she wanted to go to bed because she was for some reason tired. So I didn't say anything, but she looked at me. She understood that I was perplexed. And then, you know, mixing up not the, uh, uh, the language that always prevailed Italian with uh, one of the two, but just mm -hmm. English, using just English, she said, she said, I want to go to bed. So she chose wow. the third option. She wasn't sure of which of the two Amazing. was the, the, the right option, whether it was Kama or Camera, but she knew exactly what she wanted. And so not having an option between the two, she mm. found the third way. And the third way was what the third way was to use English. So Amazing. You see, that's that's something that um bilingual people, trilingual people, multilingual people always do without yeah. even being aware of, of doing it. And, yeah. and, and she's not, I mean, exceptional, mm -hmm. um, but this kind of, let me call it superpower, uh, is something that we all can develop of if course. we have the chance to grow in a context, uh, in an environment that provide, right. uh, provides mm. us with uh, the means to do so. Yes. So everything depends on the opportunities we have, on mm -hmm. the um, on, 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 on the context in which we happen to find ourselves and, and the, 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 the exposition to other languages, yes. to as many languages as possible that the context uh, mm -hmm. allows us to, to have. I think that's, uh, thank you for sharing, first of all, some of the stories from your um, personal life, but I think they really gave us such an eye-opening view into, you know, what you're talking about and that how, you know, it's making me think, and please tell me if I'm correct, that language, or if I'm not correct, that language identity might be contextual. We adopt a persona, I mean, a language persona, a linguistic persona based on where we are or who we are around. Um, what do you, would you say that is accurate or what do you uh, have to say? Absolutely, I agree with you 100%. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you more about this. Sure. Uh, um, it's not a kind of schizophrenia that somebody may consider this like, mm -hmm. that uh, having more languages makes you more people at the same time. And mm. um, if you know what I mean, you know, some psychologists might worry about this. Uh, right. <laughs> I think, I think there's, um, there's more positiveness than negativeness. Uh, to being, you know, more people at the same time. Right. Um, um, because you've got more options. You've yep. got more arrows, uh, if you know, at your yep. bar, you can use. Um, <laughs> you've got more possibilities to, um, more ways out. So mm -hmm. yeah, more possibilities to uh, find solutions to problems. So it's not yes. just language. It's yep. not just language, it's more than that. It's uh, what is known as Weltanschauung, using a German expression, that is sure. the vision of the world. Every, every language we speak uh, is like a, a different pair of glasses we wear. And wow. of course, through glasses, we yes. see the world. And the color of our glasses, the shape of our glasses, the, the type of lenses we've got on the glasses, all of this contribute to make us see the world in a different way. That's, so identities yeah. depends on the glasses we wear. There and you go. Yeah. We, don't need, we, we don't give up one of our personality when we speak another language. We put them all together. So our mm. personality is a multi-layered personality. That's what uh, makes uh, 
uh, a multilingual person in some respects uh, uh, more powerful yes. than a person who only has a language at its uh, at her or his disposal. Right. Um, so I think it's really, really uh, important what you said. You know, identities depends on language. Uh, sure, language forms identity. That's you know, there's a, a kind of one-to-one -one relation between language right. and identity. So the more languages you have at your disposal. Yes. Uh, the more identities you have, which is not negative at all, as opposed to some may, uh, you know, think. Yeah, no, and I think it's, I think it's also really important to that you highlighted that having more languages at your disposal means you have more possibilities for possible problems, for certain problems, to offer certain solutions, specific solutions that maybe can only be solved using those particular languages, and. I know frequent bilingual studies often mention, you know, there's cognitive advantages, right, to being a bilingual, being a multilingual. So I was wondering, you know, keeping that thought in mind, how does this affect raising a child now in this kind of environment? Because as clearly in your case, your daughters are already in this multilingual environment. Um, they're hearing and speaking three different languages. And the same story is happening all over the world where people are speaking more than one language, more than two languages. What would you say are some challenges that, you know, parents may face raising a multilingual child? You know, is it, is it more difficult these days or would you say it's easier because languages are more fluid and being exchanged more easier? Or do you think maybe that fluidity and that exchange is actually teaching us more languages, but maybe not as proficient. Okay, ah, this is a very intriguing question in a way. Um, I think that it's probably easier now than it was, let's say even only 20 or 30 years ago to grow, uh, uh, to grow bilingual, to grow up bilingual or trilingual. And, and from the other perspective to, to raise uh, a bilingual or trilingual child because we have more chances of getting in touch with people speaking other languages than we've ever had the chance to do before. Uh, you only have to think of the use we make of the internet, of, uh, of how many chances we've got to get in touch with languages that we've never heard of, uh, not only because we meet people from other parts of the world just around the corner, but also because uh, of the internet, uh, the TV and everything. For sure. So we definitely have more chances than ever before to get in touch with different languages, which also means with different cultures. So your comfort zone is definitely mm -hmm. wider, bigger, larger than ever yes. before. If you are open-minded enough to, to, to accept it, to take it in, so to speak. Um, but I think that the uh, most difficult challenge that parents have to face these days is um, once again um, related not to language them the languages themselves or to a specific language itself, but to some kind of stigma that is still attached to being mm -hmm. multilingual and multicultural as a consequence too. 
um, you know, a lot of people still think um, that being uh, bilingual, being multilingual is something that may lead to some kind of confusion, to mm. uh, late speaking and things like that. There's nothing true in this. These are all right. stereotypes which have no uh, scientific foundation, no no scientific uh, mm -hmm. uh, recognition. So right. um, I think the most relevant point here is uh, to be convinced that this is the right thing to do with your children. Right. Uh, then, of course, it's not easy uh, because uh, especially when you live in a context, uh, um, you need to uh, to be aware that other people may not be able to understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. uh, not, but I'm not talking about understanding literally what you're saying, but what you're doing. Right. I will give you another anecdote. So sometimes ago, uh, three years ago, we were my, my, my younger daughter was uh, some months old and I spent some time in Germany. I can speak German as, as a fourth language. My, my German is not that good as my Spanish and my English, but it's not that bad. And we went to a restaurant one night and um, we were ordering. So I ordered uh, dinner in German. Uh, we spoke, uh, as I told you, in Spanish, Italian and English at the same time uh, be between the three of us at the table. And there was a couple of, uh, I would say, elderly people sitting next to us. And they were speaking German, Germany, German, asking themselves, wondering, but where are they from? What language do they speak? I mean, he mm. speaks German to the waitress, uh, but they speak something that sounds like Spanish, but maybe Italian, because of course we sometimes right. speak languages and they can speak English too. So they were really staring at us, you know, <laughs> and this perplexity can be positive or negative according to the context in which you find yourself. Right. So there are contexts that are not so open-minded as to accept mm -hmm. multilingualism as, uh, as the norm. As right. everyday life, uh, and this may have an impact on your children because they may not feel confident enough in uh, any of the languages they speak. There might be some—I uh, um, wouldn't call it delay in proficiency, but there might be, you know, different proficiencies in the different languages. Oh yeah, for sure. Because the more you speak a language, the more proficient you get in that language. Definitely. But at the same time, you may have may have um, you know a, a wider vocabulary in one language than in another, or in a specific <laughs> context in one language than in another, according right. to which language you use in which context, basically. And so this may, if it is not uh, properly supported, um, uh, always be uh, lived in a positive way by your children. So you should support them in this and try to make right. them understand. Uh, um, that uh, what the, what you're giving them is actually um, the opportunity one day to have uh, um, you know something more than others. Yes, yeah. That's yes. that's my point basically. No, I don't know if I answered your question, oh. but you know, try. Uh, no, it's. Uh, I think it was a w wonderful answer and very informative, and it makes me think. Um, because you said you said stigma, so. Um, I, as a multilingual, you know, my parents encouraged me to learn uh, more than one language. You know, we speak Tamil at home, and then I have English, obviously, outside, and we have to learn French in, in school as well. So, you know, many languages in my life, and I was encouraged always, but I do know uh, many parents are afraid of teaching, like you, you touched on, teaching more than one language for fear of, you know, not being so proficient in one or, you know, and there sometimes the children are forced or really, 
you know, pushed to learn English or Spanish or French or, you know, or wherever they are, the dominant language. And sometimes it's also reinforced by the schools as well. Yeah. So that leads me to wonder, you know, parents can be putting in the effort to possibly raise a multilingual child, but if educational policies or school policies don't really add up and don't encourage that, what would be a possible solution for the parent? Or what can the parent do at that point? Or how can that child um, still develop as a multilingual? What, what do you think of? Uh, this is a question I'm often asked by my my students because, as you can understand, this is uh, you know a key point, yes. especially in 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 language education, um, because sometimes there's uh, you know parents find a hostile environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, my suggestion is to to carry on, mm-hmm. not to give up, not to give in. Uh, you know what you're doing is right speak your own language at home, try to preserve it, try to promote it, try to, yes. uh, um, to, 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 to use it as much as you can. Um, mm-hmm. They will learn the language of the context in, no matter what you do. So right. there's no reason to, um, to, 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 to abandon your own language. But mm-hmm. I think uh, in, from an institutional point of view, what should be done, and this is related to, of course, language policy, Uh, to to education as a whole, not just in in relation to languages, but education as a whole, is to uh, form, to to train uh, the next generations of teachers, not just of languages, and this is the point. Mm -hmm. You know, language is something that belongs to everyone. This doesn't mean everyone has the competence to talk about language. It's quite different, if you know what I mean. Definitely. If you said that, it would be like saying that uh, just because we all have a heart, we're all cardiologists, which is, of course, Mm -hmm. (laughs) nobody would ever believe that. Nobody would ever say that. But it seems that for some reason, just because you speak, you are allowed to say whatever you want about language, which (laughs) is not true. But uh, it's true that we all... um, own the languages we speak in a way, and we all contribute to the development, the maintenance, the, 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 you know, the changes that the language undergoes through. Um, but I think as, as educators, as linguists, we should um, try to promote this kind of awareness of the importance right. of uh, uh, promoting multilingualism, mm. of, of uh, keeping languages where they are already there, so, uh, and I'm talking, for example, of uh, immigration. Immigration from other countries always uh, takes new languages in the in the in the target country, and exactly. it's very important to keep these languages alive because one day these languages may be a resource to use, not just for the single individuals, but for the society itself. Right. So, um, uh, a multilingual country is always better than a monolingual country, in my opinion, mm-hmm. uh, especially if this comes from, um, from the top. So, right. it's, it's, it's mainly um, a kind of attitude that should be taught. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the rest comes as a consequence, but if the attitude is negative, there's not much you can do. So, our, right. our future teachers should be educated to be 
um, to be positive about multilingualism. Then you can mm -hmm. teach them how to teach a language, uh, you can mm -hmm. teach them linguistics, you can teach them social linguistics, you can teach them mythology, syntax, uh, you right. know, historical linguistics, whatever you like. But the, 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 the foremost aspects, so the, the most important aspect you should work on is uh, their uh, sensibility, their awareness mm -hmm. towards uh, what multilingualism is and uh, what richness that represents. Right. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, and as you spoke about, the cognitive advantages, I feel, need to be kind of presented more um, to to parents and maybe even to educators who are not aware of it because there, like I said, there's so many studies about it and all the possibilities and you know benefits that it, it offers to anybody, not just students, not just children, but anybody who's trying to learn more than one language. And on that note, since we're talking about educational uh, language policy, I was told that you are publishing a book and that should be ready in June called Essays in Educational Linguistics and Language Policy. Do you want to tell us a little more about that? Oh, yes. Thank you very much for the question. Yes, um, it's a collection of essays that I've written in time about different aspects of language policy from, uh, you know, language policy in, in, in specific levels of schools like kindergarten, like uh, <laughs> primary school or like secondary school university right. level or or in a more general perspective on, uh, on um, uh, what should be done to promote a, a language, uh, what aspects of the language uh, should be uh, promoted more than others. And mm -hmm. considering that Italy is, uh, nobody knows this, or very few mm -hmm. people know about this, is a multilingual country in the sense that there are not just Italian, but a lot of other dialects right. are spoken locally. And there's a, a big debate uh, about this that's been going on since uh, more than 100 years. Uh, wow. What the role of these dialects should be? Should, be mm -hmm. they, uh, should they be promoted or rather, you know, disregarded as something useless? And so right. I try in this book to, to cope, to, to, to deal with all of these uh, uh, um, uh, topics from uh, uh, um, a political point of view, so to speak. Mm. Uh, and I also try in, in some way to establish, establish a theory of language policy, which is something, you know, perhaps less interesting from a practical point of view, but absolutely mm -hmm. important to understand how, oh. uh, you know, theory can be put into practice. Of course, no but question. The, the idea that lies behind this, uh, this, uh, this book that hopefully should be ready by June. Amazing. And we are looking forward to reading that. And I'm sure um, our audience who's listening to our conversation probably has their curiosity, you know, working in overdrive today. So please check out um, Mateo's book, which will most likely be out in June. And once you're done reading that, I believe there is another book possibly coming out next year. And it's interestingly enough, connected to kind of what you were just speaking about, um, sociolinguistic profiles of Europe. Um, yep. an educational linguistic perspective. Um, could you talk about that book? Yeah, this is something that I've just started working on, whereas the previous book is something I've, I've been working on for, for some time now. This is something new. This is a, you know, a book that I'm editing actually, so it's not okay. just uh, a book of my own, but there are other sure. colleagues working. Um, actually, there are colleagues from 10, 12 countries around Europe from Portugal to, uh, um, to the Netherlands, from Britain to Germany, from Spain to, of course, Italy, France, 
And what I try to do with this book is provide a picture of the sociolinguistic situation of each of these countries. Mm -hmm. First of all, from a historical point of view. So I try, I've asked my, my colleagues to describe the history, the sociolinguistic history of the countries. Okay. Obviously not, you know, in, in a short way, shortly, because there's not space enough to, to write a book. <laughs> each of these countries right. deserve a, a book of, of, of its own. Um, um, and then I, I want them to uh, describe uh, the, the, the current situation. So mm -hmm. touching points like uh, on points like uh, the, you know immigration, the role of all the languages that make up the linguistic repertoire of the country, relations with the foreign languages and things like that. And then the last part of each of the chapters should be devoted to what impact all this has on the educational system of the country. Amazing. Special focus on, of course, uh, language and the social role of all of the languages that make up the repertoire in each country. So this is a book uh, that's just, you know, uh, being conceived, so to speak. Amazing. I've, I've just started working on it. So Perfect. that should be ready, hopefully, by the beginning of next year. And the good thing about this book is that it's going to be uh, bilingual. Uh, Amazing. <laughs> that means that some chapters will be in Italian and others will be in English. My idea was that each country uh, should have a chapter written in the language, in the main language. Oh, amazing. That would make the book impossible to sell. <laughs> so the publisher told me, uh, no, forget it. And okay. We'll never do anything like that because, I mean, nobody would, would be able to, to read a book like that, of course. But oh. I, I convinced at least in the publisher to yeah. have the abstracts of each of, uh, of the art, of, of each chapter in the language. Oh, so there will be abstracts in English and in Maltese, abstracts right. in English and French, English mm -hmm. and Italian, English right. and uh, um, Catalan, and so on and so forth. Sure. So there's, there's not, that's not what I wanted, but that's right. something at least, <laughs> better than nothing. No, I think that's, a, that's a, such a, it's a great idea to, I think, publish each chapter in that language. I think that would have been an awesome idea, but I guess maybe from a business standpoint, it might mm. not be so, uh, so wise, but once again, we, you can expect essays in educational linguistics and language policy ready for June and expected in 2022 of January, sociolinguistic profiles of Europe and educational linguistic perspective. Uh, and with that, unfortunately, we've reached the end of our time. I feel sad that I have to end this so soon because I feel like we can keep on going. But thank you once again, um, Dr. Matteo Santipolo for joining us today. It was an amazing discussion and I know you've left all of our listeners with so much to think about, not just about the topics, but I think also about themselves and you know their language identities and what context you know, they situate themselves in. So thank you so much. Um, if you'd like to get any uh, last words out to our audience, please go ahead. Thank you very much. As I said before, it's, it's a pleasure and an honor to have had this opportunity to stay here with you. Uh, so thank you very much for listening and I hope we can meet again sometimes somewhere. Thank you very much again. Thank you. Perfect. And once again, I'd like to thank our audience for listening to today's uh, podcast episode. We would like to thank Dr. Matteo Santipolo, once more again for joining us on Plurilingually Speaking, a podcast conceived by Searle, the Center for Educational Research on Languages and Literacies at OISE, 
which is the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education at the University of Toronto. My name is Myron Manogarin, and I hope to see you in our next episode. Thank you.